Welcome to The Lawyerist Podcast, a series of discussions with entrepreneurs and innovators about building a successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. Lawyerist supports attorneys building client-centered and future-oriented small law firms through community, content, and coaching, both online and through the Lawyerist Lab and Accelerator. And now, here are the co-authors of The Small Firm Roadmap and your podcast hosts. I'm Laura Briggs. And I'm Stephanie Everett. And this is episode 297 of the Lawyers Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. In today's episode, we're talking with Dr. Heidi Gardner about smart collaboration and innovation in small law firms. Today's podcast is brought to you by Smith.ai, Back Office Betty's, Text Expander, and LawPay. We wouldn't be able to do this show without their support. Stay tuned. We'll tell you a little bit more about them later on. So Stephanie, this episode is airing right after we've kicked off into the fourth quarter of a very bizarre year. And I feel like one of the things that people tend to either do annually or quarterly or on some other cadence is checking in with your team, not just on the projects that they're doing, but like, how are you doing in your job? How are you doing in this company? So what is the answer on how often we should do it? And what does that even look like? Great questions. I don't know if I have the ultimate authority here. I feel like the debate is really out on this one. Um, Here's what I do know. I don't think you should just do an annual review and call it quits, right? Like that idea that you don't give someone feedback on how they're doing on their job until, except for once a year, seems really strange to me now. I think we've heard enough that it needs to be like constant and often and checking in with people. And if they make a mistake, you just tell them as close in time as you can. How do you set the person up for this meeting, whether it's quarterly or some other time frame? I, I know what we do here at Lawyerist. What do you recommend? Do they need to answer questions in advance? Do an exercise? Is there something they need to be thinking about to show up prepared to this review period? Yeah, I think ultimately both sides should do some preparation. We have our team members answer a questionnaire. It's very much based on our values. And so we're asking them to look at our core values and do a check-in, you know, which ones are they really exhibiting and and doing awesome with? Are there some that they're not thinking about? (laughs) And maybe they need to reassess how's their work going. We ask them like things like, which of your talents are we not using right now? Which I love because sometimes we forget people have talents and we need to use it. (laughs) And then, you know, sometimes there's the harder questions like, is there a part of your, you know, your role here that needs to change? Or are there things within the way you're executing on your role that need to change? Mm -hmm. I love those questions being part of the team because sometimes it's easy in the day to day. You get so busy that you forget like, hey, my job description actually says that I do this process or that it's 30% of my job. And it's a really nice opportunity to reflect back and say, um, actually, this is like 50% of my job. So maybe I need help doing this or I'm putting too much into it or we need to adjust my job description accordingly. It feels like that's such a nice place to be able to bring up some of those questions. As the leader, how do you sort of kick off and lead this review, assuming especially right now that it's probably virtual and we don't have that benefit if you're normally an in-person team of checking somebody's body language and seeing when they're really nervous or they're scared to say something, what do you watch for when you're leading these? Yeah. So we, since we've been remote for a while, we have to do our reviews online. So we are using a video meeting 
tool so that you can at least see each other. So that's better than a call. I usually start with, try to just ease it in with some open-ended questions like, how are you doing? How are things going? Right. And just kind of start the conversation. I generally have talking points that I'm bringing into the meeting notes that I've made about performance or things, key things I want to make sure we're talking about from me or anybody else on the leadership team. The goal, I think, is to make it a dialogue and to really have both parties participating. I feel like we've had some guests on recently who've got me sort of even rethinking about this and how I should be approaching it and how my job as a manager is really to help them prioritize their work. So I love that example that you brought up because it's so easy to get in the day-to-day and And that's what our team members are looking to us for. Like, wait, what should my priority be? Because a lot of times, I think that's where frustrations happen. Like somebody's working on something and we're like, why are they working on that so much? We want them to do this other thing. Well, have we told them that? So this gives us a chance to to reprioritize and set expectations and then to really find out what they need from us to do their best work. I love that. And it feels like even if you're doing these more often, now is the perfect time of year to start that process of checking in if you haven't already, because you're probably starting to plan ahead for into 2021. You want to make sure your employees are clear on everything and that everybody's on the same page. So if you haven't done it yet this year, or if you've been doing it annually, and that is just way too long of a time period, this is a good reminder to go ahead and set up this process within your own team. And of course, you can define it how you want. And like Stephanie said, there is no one right answer, but the answer is that you should be doing it regularly and setting aside that space. Now we've got a brief sponsored conversation with Maddie Martin from Smith.ai and then my conversation with Heidi. Hi, I'm Maddie Martin, Head of Growth and Education for Smith AI Virtual Receptionists. Always a pleasure to have you on the podcast, and I know that you have two key tips for our listeners today. It's been a very tumultuous year for some, but even if things have slowed down, that's not always a bad thing because there's things you can do in that downtime. So can you tell us a little bit more? Absolutely. I think there are two key opportunities. And one is really, you know, making sure that you are getting the most out of every lead who comes through. So leads are precious right now. They are hard won. We know that law firm leads are some of the most expensive leads to buy or or show ads to, so to speak, uh, in the marketing and advertising world across all industries. But it's important that you're extremely responsive. And we know that two out of three potential clients base their decision to hire on a firm's initial responsiveness. So if there's one key thing that you can do to really increase your conversion rate, it's to answer the phone or have someone answer the phone for you, as well as being responsive on some of these other channels where on your website, through your phone number, where people are texting you, through your Facebook page, um, we're seeing an increase in screen time, these silent communications when you're surrounded by maybe your family, people are working from home, they're not going to school. It's really important that you're across all channels where your brand exists, responding, and not just by phone, but focusing on those core channels. Now, the second thing that I'll say is that if you don't have enough to focus on to convert, and that's still not filling up your whole time, and your casework is still not filling up your whole time, focus on your systems, and this is the step two. So 
Are you looking at your intake form, your workflows, your software, maybe even contracts that are coming up for renewal or software that you just haven't been so happy with and you want to take another look at that may be services as well? What are the inner workings of your system that can be optimized right now? Because when things do really come back in full force with an economic recovery and your leads are coming through in droves, you want to have a system that doesn't bog you down with work, that you're sure works to convert at the you know, highest rate, and that allows you the time to focus on strategically leading your business and doing the work that you like, whether that's lawyering or building your brand. It's really critical that you take the time right now because that's a blessing and not an opportunity for most small business owners, whether it's a law firm or not, to really be able to have that deep focus time without interruption, which a little bit of a a break from the onslaught of work can afford you. That's a really interesting idea because I think attorneys and law firms that have seen their business slow down or change significantly, kind of your gut reaction to that is to reorganize things on the other side of your business. So maybe you're scaling down how many independent contractors you're working with, or maybe you had to let somebody go that was working for the firm. And so that might have been the right decision in the moment, but you're not really poised to go back to scaling if things pick up again. And so you want to make sure that those aspects of your business are already organized as far as your software and all of that. So how would you recommend somebody start with that? Would you do an audit of all of the software and systems and everything that you currently have and then like make notes of what you're thrilled with and what might need to change? So I would take your own investigation and I would also call on others to help you investigate so that you're not introducing that bias that naturally we all have. So I would look at your systems. I would audit in secret shop everything you possibly can from your phone calls, how many rings does it take to reach you, from your email response time, are you responsive on every single channel, and how does that impact the lead conversion and also client satisfaction? I would probably do exit interviews with recent clients, even if it's not just now, but you're going back, you know, a couple months and I would do a survey. I would ask, you know, how likely people are to recommend you, which is also known as the net promoter score. And I would ask a couple other things, you know, what was really a standout great experience? What were some things that could be improvements? Get into the specifics and don't just rely on that one single number of the net promoter score and get on the phone with anyone who's willing to talk to you for 10, 15, 15 minutes and share their experience, try and categorize the sort of feedback that you get and identify what are the most common trends in that feedback. And then what is going to have the biggest impact on satisfaction, on conversion rate, maybe even on your work-life balance. You could, if you have staff who work for you, ask them also what could make them more productive, happier at work, which obviously are correlated oftentimes, and anything that can improve the system and operations that maybe they just haven't been invited to share with you and need the opportunity to do so. So many great points, and those are such valuable exercises that will help you with your current clients and also those leads that we were talking about earlier. You can chat with smith.ai live on the website. You can also get $100 off the first month for new clients and $10 off a month for existing customers as a Lawyerist Insider. You can find out more at smith.ai.
I'm Heidi Gardner. I'm a distinguished fellow at Harvard Law School and author of the Washington Post bestseller, Smart Collaboration. And uh, previously, I was a professor at Harvard Business School and a McKinsey consultant, and I've lived and worked on four continents. So I try to bring a cross-cultural perspective to a lot of what I do. That is so fascinating. And I'd love to kick off by talking a little bit about your book. This whole idea of collaboration is so key. And I think for me, one of the things that would be really helpful for our audience of small firm lawyers to hear is how do you define the difference between sequential teamwork and collaboration? Absolutely. There really is a a huge definitional point to be made here because the term collaboration means so many different things to different people. And that's why I'm always very careful to use the term smart collaboration. So what we mean by that is given that everyone these days has become pretty specialized in their work, even single lawyer firms, the lawyer running that firm has to become specialized in becoming a single lawyer firm leader and conducting the legal work. And even if they work across a range of different kinds of legal work for their clients, they've probably specialized in that jurisdiction, in getting to network within that community and so forth. And and you get people who are pretty highly specialized in their domains and the type of work that they do. And then they're confronted with clients who have problems that are more complicated than that. And in the world of big law, I mean, these can be existential problems that span matters of international trade and environmental policy and, and, and. And in the world of a, a small firm, maybe this is a client who's coming in with what appears to them to be a simple question about their estate. And the astute lawyer will figure out that their expertise only goes so far in answering that question and they're going to do a much better service to their client by tapping into some advice from a tax planner or some other kind of financial expert, maybe bringing in somebody from the healthcare world and thinking through various options about you know care and bringing in the insurance provider. And that's an example of how collaboration really makes a difference when people come together collectively and oftentimes simultaneously to share ideas and integrate their different bases of expertise to create something that's more holistic, more uh, customized, and, and a better service for their client. That's what we mean by smart collaboration. Thanks for that clarification. So I think it sounds like the core of this is really niching down in the service area that you provide, which may be even more important if you are a small firm or solo lawyer, but expanding out that network. Would you say that niching is really important for how attorneys continue to position themselves today? I think it's absolutely essential. And you know, this is not just my idea. We have all kinds of historians of science and people who are commentators in the medical arena and Uh, commentators like uh, Malcolm Gladwell, who are looking across disciplines. And basically what people understand now is that knowledge is changing so fast that in order for any of us to really do service to the area of our own expertise, we have to go deep, deep, deep in that area and really put some clear boundaries around what knowledge are we trying to build on? What knowledge do we need to stay on top of? And where can we logically say, Nope, I've just bumped up against the boundary of where I want my expertise to end. 
And that's precisely where we need to say, and who has the adjacent expertise? Who's got the experience to complement mine? And when is it going to be valuable for the client to bring their expertise in? Because we also want to make sure we're delivering cost-effective, efficient service to everyone. So we can't bring experts in at the drop of a hat just because it might be nice. And that's why we use the word smart to modify collaboration. Smart collaboration means very intentional, deliberate, strategic decision-making about when two heads truly are better than one. It sounds like maybe smart niching may be a part of that too. How do you know when you've gone too narrow or is there such a thing as too narrow with the type of law that you practice when you're branding yourself that way? I think it depends very much on market conditions and frankly, on where somebody's passion lies. You know, I've worked with plenty of experts who have the smallest niche you can imagine. And that's perfect for them because they're happy to be the world's greatest expert on that one very particular topic. And then they have the hard work ahead of them of trying to figure out where it is that that precise area of expertise is going to add value in a much wider world. That said, people who don't choose to go quite so narrow may have a bit more agility or flexibility in terms of accommodating different kinds of client demands. But at every point in time, people need to be making a thoughtful, strategic, reflective decision about what's best for them and their clients and making sure that we're not overly prescriptive about one best way of operating. Mm -hmm. So you brought up client demands and market conditions as some of the things you should take into account when doing that. There's been so much change in the last year that's affected many different industries, but most certainly law. What do you see as on the horizon when it comes to client demands and client service expectations in kind of 2020 and beyond for lawyers? I think it's really crucial for lawyers like anyone who's dealing with the public these days to recognize how much the current environment has affected people's psychology. And what I mean by that is we are all facing such an uncertain world ahead of us. I won't even begin to dabble in the idea about politics, but certainly just when we you know, take into account the health concerns, the equality concerns, some of the, the social unrest that's been going on, as well as uh, you know, a whole range of um, uh, shifts in terms of how people are living their lives, whether it's online schooling or remote working. And I think as service providers, lawyers do need to understand that this is affecting the way that their clients are even perceiving problems and opportunities. To be blunt, a lot of people right now are having a hard time not being very risk averse, and they're having a hard time seeing upside or the optimistic outcomes. And lawyers need to be aware of that when they're counseling their clients so that they can, as appropriate, call out bias in the way people are thinking. Um, and by this, I mean, you know, the world probably is not going to come to an end. And, uh, and the lawyers do need to help their clients see a realistic perspective of, of what's likely to happen. Um, and if clients are, you know, kind of on one end or the other of that optimism, pessimism scale to try to anchor them back to center and ground them into a more cognitive kind of discussion because people are making a lot of very emotional decisions these days. I think it's also really important to 
recognize that lawyers really still are the trusted advisor professionals for a lot of people and that they can be a bit scary. Um, and so one of the small pieces of advice, the small tactics that I keep reminding lawyers about is be more than a lawyer and in sometimes be less than the smartest person in the room, or at least don't come across as the smartest person in the room, because that can be intimidating for other people. You know, drop your legalese, your lawyer speak, the heretofores, and put yourself in the shoes of somebody who maybe hasn't interacted with a lawyer before, or if they have, it hasn't been in the most positive circumstances. You know, demonstrate some empathy and some compassion in the way you're interacting with them. That's what's going to really help your client to open up to you and will allow you to have a much more realistic take on what it's going to take to really benefit them. That's when you'll have those deeper conversations, not about the, the kind of problem du jour that they've maybe, you know, the presenting problem that they've shown up in your virtual office about, but rather, you know, how does this fit in with the bigger picture? Where is life taking them? What's happening with their business, their family, their health, their you know, financial position? And by having those broader conversations, the lawyer really can help a conversation head in the direction where it becomes more strategic than short-term and tactical. And again, that starts with demonstrating that empathy, that humanism, and uh, and the sense of being on their side and not you know superior in any way. And one of the big challenges of becoming that trusted advisor and even getting to that point where you're positioning yourself that way in front of the client is that you have to make an impression and make an impression quickly that you are the right trusted advisor. And one of your tools from the Smart Collaboration book is this concept of a three-word brand. Can you talk a little bit about what that means and how you go about defining what that looks like for your firm? Absolutely. And and, and people have to be clear themselves about what it is that they're trying trying to accomplish specifically with regard to how do they add value to clients. And the idea of a three-word brand is that, you know, if communications experts will tell you that's what kind of sticks in people's minds. Maybe it's two words. Very few people have the luxury of encapsulating their expertise in a single word, but being able to articulate what value you add to clients in just a few words, and it's not just any words, it's a few simple words is essential. Part of the exercise here is this self-reflection and the dialogue that happens with clients. If you have that roster of trusted clients, open up to them and let them know that you're trying to to figure this out. You're trying to crystallize how it is that you add value to people like them. And a lot of people are really happy to engage in that conversation. In fact, many people are flattered that you'd even ask. And the idea of a three-word brand then, uh, it's partly external, it's outward looking, so people know when to turn to you and frankly, when not to, and that will save you a lot of time, some of the false starts so that uh, people will not approach you when when it's not gonna be appropriate for you. That said, it's as important as an internal exercise to get people to reflect on and crystallize that true value. And then what I would say is, you know, test it. 
when you think you've got your three-word brand, go to some of your, your clients, um, ask them if that resonates, ask them a, to be a sort of mini focus group for you and play back to you. What comes to mind when you mention those three words and is it what they would think of you uh, in providing? And you know, almost certainly this will be an iterative process. And for people who approach it with the mindset that they're going to learn through the process, it will be far less um, frustrating or even demoralizing because almost nobody gets this right straight out of the gates. That's a key distinction about those focus groups because you have to be comfortable with the idea of the three-word brand that you've selected. Certainly, it's going to define you and your firm, but it might not be the perfect thing out of the gate with what you come up with. And running that by some other people and getting their feedback will give you that good food for thought on where to go next. Did you drill down enough in that process? Is it unclear or is it creating an impression that's a little different than what you actually intended with what you came up with? Absolutely. And one thing I'd add there is making sure you're getting a diversity of views, because these days, perhaps more than ever with the the speed and the trendiness of language um, through social media, it is um, entirely likely that a word you pick has some sort of double entendre or or some unintended association with um, demographics who are different than you. And uh, and so I'd really encourage you not to, um, you know, create the wrong kind of impression. Even if it's not with your target market, you want to be soliciting feedback and um, and inputs from people across a wide array of demographics so that you really understand what the implications of those three words are in a range of circumstances. Absolutely. That's so important. We'll take a quick break to hear from some of our podcast sponsors. And when we come back, we'll be chatting about what it really means to collaborate in your law firm. Support for today's episode comes from Back Office Betty's, the only virtual receptionist service exclusively dedicated to small law firms that offers a plan with unlimited calls. Their highly specialized service boasts customized call handling, relentlessly friendly team members, and unmatched quality. The Betty's are ready to help you grow your firm even when you're out of the office. Visit backofficebetty's.com lawyerist to try them out for one week free. Use the promo code PODCAST to receive $150 off your first month. Supercharge your team with the power of Text Expander. Your team can do more with the same resources. Less repetition, fewer errors, and greater consistency will have your team feeling like they've hopped off a bicycle and into a Ferrari. Keep the team consistent, accurate, and current so you can work faster and smarter with Text Expander's powerful shortcuts and abbreviations to streamline and speed up everything you type. Create powerful snippets to save you time so that all you type is a short abbreviation and Text Expander does the rest for you. Keep your whole team communicating efficiently and with consistent language. Text Expander is available on Mac, Windows, Chrome, iPhone, and iPad. And Lawyerist podcast listeners get 20% off their first year. Visit textexpander.com podcast to learn more. Trust the only payment solution offered through the ABA Advantage program, LawPay as the ability to accept payments online becomes an increasingly essential part of your practice. LawPay provides your firm with a proven and trusted solution. With LawPay, you receive a simple, secure way to accept client credit cards and e-check payments from anywhere. 
LawPay understands the unique compliance requirements placed on attorneys, which is why their solution was developed specifically to correctly separate earned and unearned fees and protect IOLTA accounts from any third-party debiting, giving you peace of mind that your transactions are always handled correctly. To learn more or to get started, visit LawPay.com lawyerist today. All right. Welcome back, everybody. So when it comes to collaboration, you've mentioned that one of the key aspects of this is innovation. Why is innovation so important for the way that clients perceive law firms and why clients think that collaboration is such a great tool for their perspective? So let's just be clear about what we mean by innovation. A lot of people think of innovation as the same as creativity, you know, big blue sky thinking out of the box or whatever phrase people use about it. And it's important to realize that creativity is only half of innovation. The other half is taking a big, bold, brand new novel idea and applying it. A crazy new idea that can't be implemented isn't actually innovative. It's just a crazy new idea. And so that is really an important distinction because when clients think about innovation in the law, what they mean is, what can you do for me that's useful and practical and helps me solve the problem that's right in front of me right now, as I understand it? And so I think that uh, not that many people in the world today would necessarily associate the word innovative with law. Um, you know, we all know it's sort of precedent-based and, you know, oftentimes people, as I said before, can be a bit intimidated about what the law is and how much room there is for agility and creativity within the legal bounds. And I think it's important for uh, legal providers to help people understand that innovation comes in lots of different flavors. Innovation can mean taking an idea that has been around for quite a long time and you know turning it just slightly sideways so that it is fresh enough and customized enough to solve the problem that that client is confronting. And innovation really matters these days because there's a huge amount of innovation, even in the way law is practiced, let alone the content of the law. You know, think about how much we're using technology these days, the idea of the virtual visit and the online courts. There's a tremendous amount of innovation that the recent COVID situation has forced upon us. And I think lawyers who embrace that kind of innovation, you know, both with its challenges and the potential upside are the ones who are really going to be able to, to serve their clients in the best possible ways through the crisis and emerging from it. One of the things that we heard from a lot of attorneys and kind of across the industry when this pandemic first started and sort of we were partway into it and it was definitely lasting longer than everyone thought, but we weren't multiple months in was, well, I'm kind of waiting. I'm going to watch and see how things go. And there was maybe a little bit of a hesitancy about innovation. Do you feel like the timing is right for innovation now that it really is the perfect opportunity for law firms to think about doing things differently or collaborating differently? Or, you know, I can definitely hear some of our audience thinking, well, yeah, but I just really want to see if a vaccine comes out or if things settle down or how the election falls out. I'm just sort of curious your perspective on, is there a right timing for innovation or is it sort of an all the time thing we need to consider? Well, let me just say this. I don't have a crystal ball for <laughs> sure, but you know, the prediction I can make is we are never going back to September, 2019, period. 
There is no back to the future or a time when we are going to land ourselves and say, shoo, glad that passed and we're done with it. The world has moved on. There is no way that we are going to think about service provision the way we used to. And so I think anyone who is, you know, sort of hanging on by their fingernails, just waiting for whatever big event to happen is going to get passed by and will find that people who are willing to take the risks, invest and innovate during this time, whatever the next normal looks like and whenever it arrives, those are the people, the firms, the lawyers, and the clients that will be ready to thrive. And so anyone who's kind of digging their heels in and saying, oh, let me just hang on a little bit longer and I don't feel like I need to make a change. Or, you know, I've used kind of bubble gum and, and cello tape to get us this far. And I'm pretty sure I can hold everything together in this makeshift way. I'd say, boy, you're really living dangerously. And it, it's probably not going to benefit you or your client base to imagine that you can just carry on, you know, slightly adapting what we used to do. I'm not saying you need to completely throw out the way you practice law, for sure not. But I will say we need to be far more aware of factors like what it takes to truly establish a new client relationship when perhaps you will never meet that person physically, face to face. And, you know, how do you think about communicating the words I used earlier, empathy and compassion via a Zoom platform, for example? How do you demonstrate trustworthiness? How do you comfort and console a client who bursts into tears? You know, what are you actually going to do to have a human connection with people when you're mediated by technology? If you don't have good answers to that right now, this is exactly the time to start innovating and, and building your skill set. And, you know, we know that there are lots of different approaches. There's no one size fits all, either for the lawyer or for their client base. And I'd say this is a time when people are somewhat more lenient in terms of tolerating mistakes or accepting that people are experimenting, understanding that there's glitches in terms of technology or even in terms of people's you know, fluency with how to use the technology. This really is a good time to take some of those risks and experiment because if you don't, your competitors probably are and they will emerge at whatever point having built up this skill set and this comfort level and having shifted their client base and invested in technology and other kinds of systems, um, you know, human systems that help them get through this. And you're going to be playing catch up. And by the time that happens, the market tolerance for experimentation may have actually worn a bit thin. That's a really good point of this being the ideal time to take advantage of some of these ripe factors in the market that are going to allow you to be a little more innovative and try out some different things and experiment maybe with your pricing or your marketing or the specific offers that you had. So that's one side of the equation. That's definitely where the revenue is coming in for a small law firm. The other part of all of that is how you run the business side of your firm. And you have one of the most popular 
popular articles ever on Harvard Business Review about staying focused when you're involved in multiple projects at once. And I was I was reading that. I thought, how do lawyers do that? Because by their very nature, they're involved in many projects and cases at the same time. Do you have any recommendations for the small firm lawyer that does have to handle quite a bit? Absolutely. I think one of the most important things for that lawyer to do is to be clear at any given point in time which hat they're wearing. So I use this metaphor of a hat. You know, are you the business owner and CEO? Are you the administrator or are you the lawyer? Now, it's you know very hard to neatly disentangle those roles, but there are decisions that you need to take sometimes which uh, force you to call on one skill set versus another. And it's helpful for you to get in the frame of mind which role you're trying to play and, and which skill sets you're really bringing forth. And if you can actually schedule your day to some degree so that you have some separation between this sort of producer, leader, manager buckets that you're juggling, that can be helpful for you. Um, because we know that you know the way that the human brain works, it entails switching costs when you move from one task to the next. And the more closely related those tasks are, the lower the switching costs. So for example, if you've got a whole mess of scheduling to do, try to tackle that within a period of time. You kind of get into the scheduling zone and you can make those decisions and become a sort of more fluent in how you're juggling between different windows on your computer and, and, and. When you can then put that aside and do some deep work. You know, that's the term for those kinds of tasks that really require all in thinking and serious focused concentration. And ideally while people are, are doing that deep work, rid themselves of distractions. Literally take your phone and put it in a different room because experiments show that merely having a phone within arm's reach is itself a distraction. So get rid of the distraction. I, when I'm doing that kind of work, um, for me, it's usually the research and writing tasks. I go so far as to put an out of office message on my email that says, I've got my head down working on this new book chapter right now. I'm gonna check email again at four o'clock this afternoon, period. And that gives me license not to check email. It gives me the opportunity then to really focus and concentrate without feeling guilty and actually, it holds me accountable for not getting distracted because I've done that in the past. And then I've kind of cheated and I've looked at my email and I've responded to somebody and, and they've gotten back to me. And they said, hey, wait a minute. What about your book chapter? And I thought, oh, gosh, you're absolutely right. You know, now I have the luxury of having a team around me who can help. And so I'll I'll direct people, you know call Leah, call Chilla, call Ivan during that time when I'm unavailable. And that's a, a huge luxury for me to have the support system in place. So, you know, maybe the solo lawyer doesn't have the luxury of tuning out for a day at a time, but even protecting yourself for 90 minutes or two hours at a stretch, there are very few things that truly come up that can't wait for another hour or so to get you to return the call. And the benefit you get from deep concentration and real focus on that kind of work well outweighs the trade-offs associated with it. Those are all amazing tips. And I use the email one all the time because it's just a great way to sort of train other people. Like, yes, I've received your message, but 
I'm not going to respond during this time. So you don't need to send me the three or four follow-up emails. Did yes. you get this? Did you see this? Did this go through? Right. Absolutely. You kind of train that away. So to some extent, as a small law firm owner, you have to stay agile. You have to recognize that you do wear these multiple hats and that you want to optimize how you move back and forth between them. Another one of these concepts that I think could be potentially challenging for small law firm owners is how do you tell when you have crossed that line into becoming an overcommitted organization? So you've done all the optimization, you've done everything you can, and then there's just times where you're overcommitted, be it for the size of your firm or the capabilities of your current staff. How do you sort of tell that difference between I'm just in a busy time and we are overcommitted and we are multi-teaming? And if you want to kind of explain what you mean by those terms too, that'd be great. Absolutely. So, so research that I did with with uh, one of my colleagues, Mark Mortensen, who's a professor at INSEAD Business School in Fontainebleau, France. He and I have been working on this idea of multi-teaming. And it really is, you know, just as it suggests, it's an individual who's pulled across multiple projects simultaneously and has responsibilities to, to different projects and different project teams. And that is very much the world that we live in. Almost nobody, you know, very, very few people have the luxury of only working on one thing at any given time. Um, and and what we know is that it works very well for efficiency's sake in terms of somebody's always got something important to do. Nobody's kind of sitting around, um, you know, on the beach, as it were, just waiting for the next project to light up. But the risk associated with it is that, well, multiple risks. One is that people become pulled in so many different directions that they actually are wasting a huge amount of time and energy on those switching costs that I mentioned earlier. And it actually doesn't give them the opportunity to engage deeply. It also means that there's a real risk that when people are pulled across multiple projects, they won't make the most strategic decision about where to spend their time. And we've seen this in organization after organization, small ones and gigantic global ones, where people will get pulled onto the urgent firefighting project and they will leave behind the work that they should be doing on several other projects that are far more strategic, important for the company, revenue generating, you name it. And um, oftentimes what happens then is people make decisions about where to spend their time and energy and focus based on kind of who shouts the loudest or you know which email comes screaming across with capital letters in the subject line and there's a real risk then that people don't prioritize appropriately and you know i would say that that's a very good clue that the organization is overcommitted and overcommitted could mean two things it could mean that truly demand is swamping supply or it could mean that you have a, a possibility of matching supply and demand, but you're organizing poorly to capture it uh, and, to, and to deliver the services. And I'd ask people to, to stop and think about which scenario they're in at the moment. Is it that they are not well organized to supply the client needs or to serve the client needs? Or is there a systemic issue here where there's, for the foreseeable future, this over demand? That's where it's really critically important for people to be thinking about where is their network? Where have they built some potential redundancies into their network so that they can call on resource when it's needed? Because if they wait until they're too busy or overcommitted to try to reach out and build that network, it's really too late because by definition, they're too busy to do it at that time. And that's why we encourage people to think about collaboration, about smart collaboration as an investment. 
getting people to think about where are the boundaries of their own expertise, how do they meet with and cultivate a network of people who have adjacent expertise, being very thoughtful about where the overlaps are so that they can bring people in as you know, backups when the, the demand really is overwhelming. This all takes time and people have to be strategic enough that they make the investment. It's not a cost, it's an investment because we know from all of our empirical research that it really does pay out, but that the costs are incurred initially and the benefits only accrue kind of slowly and over time or in these crisis situations that are hard to predict. And we really encourage people to think strategically about, you know, what does my network look like? People who are listening right now, if you're not you know, behind the wheel of a car, pull out a, a sheet of paper and start thinking about who's in your professional network, who, who's inside that has uh, similar skill sets and competencies and expertise areas and reputation as you, who can serve as backup when you simply are overcommitted, and who plays in these concentric circles where their expertise is complementary to you. And those are the ones you call on for these more complex problems when you need a, a more holistic point of view. And getting people to sit down and doing this with pen and paper is a very important exercise to spark some self-reflection about where the gaps are, where you've over-invested perhaps in, and built up one area of your network at the expense of others. And this is a great time for reflection. And now people are so accustomed to engaging virtually that if you find out that you do have, you know, sort of gaps in your network, you're able to, to find people to complement your, your expertise areas and reaching out isn't as awkward as it may have felt even a year ago. That is an incredible action step for anyone listening to this episode to start mapping out, drawing it out and visualizing where are the gaps in our networking? Where are the gaps in the firm? And who can we rely on in the event that we have become overcommitted? This is a great time for reflection. And thank you so much for coming on the show. You have a wealth of knowledge and research that is out there. We'll link your book in the show notes. Well, one of your books because you have many. Um, but can you tell everyone a little bit more about where they can go to learn more about some of your research? Absolutely. So our website is gardnerandco.co, gardnerandco.co. And I would like to point out that Gardner & Co. does not stand for Gardner & Company. It's Gardner & Collaborators. So we try to live what we preach here, and we've developed a whole web of relationships ourselves uh, that we try to provide client service and do our research and advisory work through. So GardnerAndCo.co is our website, and there's an insights page there which has a whole archive of our published research and a lot of the podcasts and webinars that we've been doing, especially over the last few months. It's really um, been a, a pleasure to be involved in so many different kinds of outreach. And we direct people there as well as some of the, the books that I've written. And um, you know, again, wanted to thank you so much for this opportunity. It's been a really fun conversation with you. Yeah, I know I've learned a lot and it's been a pleasure. So thanks. My pleasure. The Lawyer's Podcast is produced by Laura Briggs and edited by Christopher Ng. Are you ready to implement the ideas we discuss here into your practice? Wondering what to do next? Well, here are your first two steps. If you haven't read the Small Firm Roadmap yet, grab the first chapter for free right now at lawyers.com book. Next, if you're looking for help beyond the book, then let's chat about whether our coaching communities are right for you. Head to lawyers.com slash community to schedule a 15-minute call with our community manager. The views expressed by the participants are their own and are not endorsed by Legal Talk Network. 
Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you.